It has been good to gather together for worship already this morning. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we'll be looking at the beginning of this chapter. I titled my sermon this morning, What Can God Do? Now typically I, I don't think a lot about sermon titles. Some preachers put a lot of time into coming up with some kind of clever, catchy title for it, and I, I usually just throw something out there on the paper. And so, if you offered me a million dollars to tell you what was my last sermon title, there's no hope. I could never do it, because I just don't think about it. I just put the words on there and go on to go through Scripture. So this morning, what I've done is just put out a question as the title of the sermon. The question is, what can God do? Now, if you've been in church any amount of time in your life at all, you know the answer to that question. So how do you answer that question? What can God do? What's the answer? Anything. God can do anything he wants because he is God. God has all power. And so there's a big theological term that we say to describe this. So what is that term that means God has all power? You remember? Omnipotent, yeah, we've got some good theologians out there who remember that. God is omnipotent. He has all power, all ability. God can do anything that he wants because he is God. Now, for most of us, that is a no-brainer kind of a question. What can God do? He can do anything. But one thing that I have found in my life sometimes is that the thing that I know intellectually that I know in my mind doesn't always translate out into how I live. So, for, for example, I am afraid of heights. I absolutely cannot stand being any taller than this right here. Uh, ladders are not my friends, and I, uh, I don't even like thinking about being up high. Uh, this past week, I, I saw a video of a guy who was climbing a, a radio tower. And this wasn't just any radio tower. It was 1,768 feet tall. This is taller than the Empire State Building. And, and I watched on my computer as this guy climbed all the way up to the top to, to change a light bulb or something like that, that that had to be I would just cut the tower down and let it go. But he, he climbed all the way up, rung after rung, till it was just these little kind of pegs at the very top. And I, I'll be honest with you, I, my stomach started to turn a little bit just watching the video. I, I was thinking about it this morning as I was preparing for my sermon, and I started to get queasy again, and I was just sitting there thinking about it. Now, watching that video, I know that I'm not on that tower. I know that I'm not going to fall out of my chair a thousand feet. But somehow, there is a disconnect between what I know in my mind and how I react. We're going to be looking at a passage this morning in which I think there is a disconnect that we see. That sometimes there is a disconnect between what we know in our minds that God can do and what we think, what we believe, what we expect that he actually will do. See, we, we often know the right things. We know the right truths in our minds. We know that God will accomplish all his purposes. We know that God will do all he sets out to do because he is God. 
He will often do this in ways that we cannot imagine, ways that we could not expect. But at the same time, although we know these things to be true, all too often, as I look at my life, I don't really anticipate or expect that God might actually work and move. And although we know that God can do anything that God says that he will do, sometimes we don't really anticipate, expect that perhaps God might actually work among us and even that he might actually use us for his kingdom purposes. So my question for us this morning is do we believe that God will accomplish his kingdom purposes? And do we believe that God might even perhaps use us for his kingdom purposes? So turn with me to Mark chapter 8 this morning. Mark chapter 8 is the story of the feeding of the 4,000, a story that I'm sure that, that most of you in here are familiar with. This is a story in which we see that the disciples had the right knowledge, but there was a disconnect between knowing and then actually expecting, seeing something happen. There was a disconnect between what they knew that did not translate into a right response on their part. So in Mark chapter 8, we see that Jesus has been traveling around the Sea of Galilee. Uh, he, he has been kind of in a Gentile territory, going around healing and, and teaching and spending time uh, with the people there. And, and there begins to be a large, large crowd that is following him as he ministers around the Sea of Galilee. So, so listen with me as we turn to Mark chapter 8, starting at verse 1. In those days, when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples. You see, Jesus had been with, uh, been with these people walking around and, and, and been doing some healing, and he had spent some time with the folks and, and then moved out into a wilderness desert area. Uh, and his, his teaching and his, his miracles had caused the people who were in the towns to actually follow him out into the desert to, to stay with him and watch him as he healed, as he did these miracles, and hear him as he was teaching. And, and it was there that they they spent so much time with him, were so caught up in all that he was doing that they ended up staying three days with him. And, and so now listen to how Jesus responds to them. I feel compassion for the people, starting in verse 2. I feel compassion for the people because they have remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way, and some of them have come from a great distance." This, this is actually a pretty amazing statement that we have here. These people had come from the villages out into the wilderness to, to hear Jesus. They were so caught up in what he was doing that they hadn't anticipated staying for three days, but they did. They just stayed with him for three different days. And now Jesus looks at him and he says, I have compassion because I know that these people did not come out here expecting to stay this long. They didn't bring any food with them. And now if I send them back now, they're going to faint on the way home. Jesus has compassion on them. And so now he turns to the disciples to talk to them about what's going to happen next. Now you and I know what's coming in this. 
We know what Jesus is going to do. We know that he is going to feed the 4,000 who are there. But the disciples don't get it. Listen to their response in verse 4. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone be able to find enough bread here in this desolate place to satisfy these people? Where could anyone find all the food that's needed in this desert that we're in right now to feed all the people who are here? Now, some people look at what the disciples are saying here, and they say, well, what the disciples are really saying is that we, we know, Jesus, that no one else could do this, but, but you can do it. And, and some people say that because of something that the disciples had seen happen very similar to this not too long before. So what's the other feeding account that we know? You remember? Feeding of how many? Feeding of 5,000. That's just a couple chapters before this in Mark. And so they look at that and say the disciples had already seen 5,000 be fed by five loaves of bread, two fish. And so they look at this and say, well, the disciples really understood that Jesus could feed them. And so what they were saying is that, well, we can't do this ourselves, but Jesus, we know that you can. But I think the disciples' statement is pretty clear here. I think it's pretty clear that they're saying, well, Jesus, they're... There isn't enough food here. The people can't be fed right here. I don't think it was on their radar that Jesus was actually going to do what he did. You see, if there's anything I've learned about human nature by looking at myself, it's that sometimes we are slow to catch on because I see it in me. You know, one one of my... One of the things I evidently am known for is that I like food. Big fan. My favorite food group is chocolate chip cookies. You all know the, the food pyramid? Did you, did you learn that? You've seen that? I think that chocolate chip cookies should have their own big category right there in the food pyramid. And, and I love chocolate chip cookies. And I'm really blessed because my wife makes great chocolate chip cookies. Uh, she actually spent years taking a specific recipe and tweaking it. So it would be just right. Changing the amount of flour, the, the sugar, the brown sugar. So it turns out just perfect. And what she'll do is she'll fix a batch of chocolate chip cookies and bring me a plate of them when they're fresh out of the oven. You know when they're still gooey and there's the chocolate kind of dripping off of it still and it's full of chocolate chips. So there's just enough batter to hold the chocolate chips together. The best kind of cookie you know. Well, she'll bring me a plate of those. And when she brings me the plate of cookies, here's what she'll say. Don't eat all the cookies. Now, why would she say that? Because I eat all of the cookies. And so here's what I think when she brings me out this plate of cookies. I'm thinking to myself, after she says this, I am a grown man. I know how many cookies I'm supposed to eat and how many I'm not supposed to eat. I know that. I tell my kids, don't eat all the candy. I'm a fairly intelligent guy. I can figure this out. But you know what I do every time? I eat every single cookie. I'm not going to tell you how, how many cookies are on the plate, but I eat every single one that's on the plate. And when you know what I say at the end of that? I shouldn't have eaten all those cookies. Now, I know intellectually in my mind not to eat all those. And I know the consequences that I'm going to have a bellyache because of doing that. 
Now, if there is a disconnect that we have in the little things like that, is it not possible that there are times where we have a disconnect in the bigger things? You see, I don't have any doubt that the disciples knew in their minds that Jesus could feed every person who was there. I don't have any doubt that they knew that Jesus could take the rocks and turn them into bread if he wanted to because the disciples had seen this before. So they knew it in their minds, but I don't think it was on their radar at all. See, Mark's whole point with this chapter is that the disciples don't get it, that they're not understanding who Jesus really is and what Jesus really can do. You see, right after this passage, the disciples are on a boat with Jesus, and uh, Jesus looks at them and asks them, how much bread do you have? And they realize they have forgotten to bring bread with them, so all they have is a loaf of bread. And so what Jesus does at this point is he looks at them and he decides, this is going to be a point where I can teach them, a teaching opportunity for them. And so he looks at them and says, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, beware of the leaven of Herod. And the disciples don't get what he's talking about. They're not understanding. Listen to what Jesus says to him. Pick up in verse 17. Jesus said, aware of this, Jesus aware of this said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Now listen, listen to this. Do you not yet see or understand? Do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Don't you remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said to him, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of broken pieces did you pick up? They said, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? See, I think the whole point that Paul is making in this passage here is that the disciples weren't getting it. They had a lot of head knowledge because they had seen God work. They had seen Christ work. But they weren't rightly understanding. There was a disconnect there. And so now with the disciples wondering, where, where are we going to get food? Jesus does what only Jesus can do. So let's pick up back at verse 5. Listen to what happens. You know the story. And he was asking them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve them. And they served him, them to the people. They also had a few small fish. After he had blessed them, he ordered those to be served as well. And they ate, and they were satisfied. And they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. And immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. I wonder if sometimes we're not a little like the disciples. That we know exactly in our minds the truth of who God is. We know what God can do. But we don't really expect. We don't really anticipate. We don't really long for God to actually work. And we question, we wonder if God can actually use us for his purposes. But when we see what God does here, 
It causes us to change our mind, to think about what is it that God might be pleased to actually do. So let's go back through this passage. Let's, let's look at it with fresh eyes, perhaps, to think about what is going on here. I want you to notice what drives this whole encounter. Jesus' compassion compels him to act. The compassion of Christ compels him to act in this. Look back at verse 2. What is it that Jesus says here uh, to the disciples? He says, I feel compassion for the people because they have been here for three days and they have not had any food. It's compassion that drives him to feed the 4,000 here. It's the exact same thing he said in the feeding of the 5,000. He said, I feel compassion on these and so I'm going to provide for them. And you know what makes this stand out even more in this passage? It's where he is and who he's talking to. Remember, he's in Gentile territory when he is going through here. So the people who are there, they're gathered with him primarily are Gentiles who are there out in the desert listening to him. These are not Jews. These are not people who are the chosen people of God. These are not the ones who are uh, part of the covenants and the promises These are the ones, as Paul says, are separated, do not have hope. They're aliens and strangers, separated from the covenants of promise that they have. Some that Jews would even call the dogs. And yet Jesus looks at them and has compassion on them. Compassion and mercy are part of the very nature of who God is. Do you remember in Exodus when uh, when? Moses went up on the mountain, and he saw a glimpse of who God was. And God speaks at that moment. This, this is what we hear. It says, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. He's given us a glimpse of who he is. So now why though, why is it that Jesus tells the disciples here about this? Why does he say, I feel compassion on them? Why is he inviting them into understanding what's going on here? Because he desires for the disciples also to display this kind of compassion that they might understand this as well. William Hendrickson writes, The master addresses his disciples in order to awaken them to their responsibility. So thoroughly must the disciples take to heart the problem faced by the hungry multitude that they, these 12 men, will say, It's our own problem. We must do something about it. We long to see this rectified. And so in the feeding of the 4,000, Jesus shows his compassion in regard to food. And so the question I put before you is that if Jesus shows his compassion in regard to food, will he not show compassion over that which is greater? So what is the greatest way that God has shown compassion on the world? It's through Christ, through the gospel. That God saw fit for the Son to come to the earth to take on human flesh, to live among a sinful people who despised him, who rejected him, to live in the midst of temptation and all that Satan would throw at him, to eventually carry a cross, 
to bear the burden of sin, to take upon himself the full wrath of God for sin, that sin might be forgiven. This is the greatest way that compassion is ever seen. God demonstrates that through Jesus Christ dying on the cross that our sins might be forgiven. And so we ask the question thinking about this, is he still the same God of compassion today? Absolutely. And so is God not pleased to take those who are separated from him, dead in their sins, and to bring them to life in Christ and make them his own? Yes. Our God delights in doing that. Scripture says that that he desires for none to perish. We see in Revelation that there will be people from every tribe and tongue and nation and people who will be surrounding the throne, singing the praises of God. Our God delights in showing compassion on those who have no hope. And so if that is the case, should we as his children who have received that compassion, should we not long for and anticipate and expect and hope that God might display that compassion also on those with whom we share the gospel. It should not surprise us that God does work in bringing people to himself and advancing his kingdom purposes. Compassion of Christ compels him to act. And, And notice this also. He uses minuscule means for his purposes. Jesus asks here, how much bread do you have? He's talking to the disciples here. How, how much do you have? And, and they answer, seven loaves of bread and, and a few small fish. It tells us that they're small. And, and so if we add this up, say maybe there's three small fish, seven loaves of bread. So we've got maybe ten items here. And how many people? 4,000 people who are here. What is it that, that 4,000 people can get from 10 items? That's for each person, one four hundredth of a piece of fish or a loaf of bread. That, that does nothing. It accomplishes nothing. But what does Jesus do? Jesus takes this minuscule means and he does what only the Almighty can do. And so he takes this food, and he breaks it, and he starts spreading it out. And so the scripture says that they ate a bite, and that's all they had. No. Scripture says they, they ate enough to at least get them home. No, that's not what it says. They ate enough so that they were pretty full. No, it says they ate, and they were satisfied. Ate all that they could ever desire and hope for they had right then. And then after it's over, they take baskets around. It says that they take baskets and they collect seven baskets full of bread. Now, these aren't small baskets. The word that's used here for basket is the same word that's used in Acts when Paul is lowered down uh, through a wall. So large baskets, seven of them that are taken up. So why is it that Jesus would do such a miracle in which he provides so abundantly more that there are seven baskets left over, abundantly more than they ever even started with? It's to show the disciples and to show the people there that he can do abundantly more than they could ever think. That he can take the most minuscule means and accomplish his will beyond anything that we could ever think, ever hope to accomplish on our own. But sometimes 
Sometimes we look at ourselves, I think, and we look at our own minuscule means, and we wonder, how could God use me? How could God use little me who has so few skills? I'm not a good speaker. I'm, I'm not talented in this way. How can God use me for his kingdom purposes? Well, the answer is it's not about you. It's not about your ability. It's not about what you perceive as your inability, but it's entirely about the ability of God. Entirely about what God himself can do and no one else can do. And so here's the thing. When the disciples are here with Jesus, I don't think that they would deny what Christ could do. I don't think they, that they would say, Jesus, no, you can't do that. They had already seen him heal the sick. They had already seen him feed 5,000. They had already seen all these different things. They knew in their minds what Jesus could do, but they really didn't expect that he would. I, I want to preface what I'm, I'm going to say next by saying that I, I 100% believe in the absolute sovereignty of God over everything. That God is providentially working in every single situation, and his will will always occur. But I wonder, I wonder if in our own lives there are times we see God using us little because we expect and desire little from him. But I want to tell you that God can take what we perceive as the smallest means the most minuscule means, the smallest ability that we think we have or the smallest thing that could possibly be done. And he can take those things and he can work powerfully in ways that can only be explained by him. What power do the disciples have here? None. What power does seven loaves of bread have? None. What power does a few small fish have? None. But what power does Christ have? All power. So can our God take our most minuscule efforts and multiply them for his kingdom, for his sake, for advancing the glory across the world? Absolutely, God can do this. Do you know how incredibly freeing this is? That when, when you resolve to go take the gospel to your neighbors, and your heart is pounding, and you're trembling a little, and you don't know exactly what to say, and your knees are knocking, and you're just praying that you get the right words out, and they don't ask you too difficult questions. Do you know how freeing this knowledge is to know that it's not dependent on you to change the lives of your neighbors, but it's totally dependent on the power of the God who can do all things? Is that not freeing to you to now be able to boldly go and take the gospel to your neighbors, to take the gospel to your work, to, to lay down your life, to go across the world, because you know it's not a matter of what you can do, but what God can do through you. You are free to boldly go out knowing that it's not about you, but about what God can do. Man, isn't that good for us to recognize that and believe that? So I ask the question, what can God do? Can God use you to reach your neighbors? I'll tell you a story of a man by the name of Kaz Wilmot, a man I'm sure you've never heard of. In 1940, in Lexington, Kentucky, he went 
with his church to reach a particular neighborhood in Lexington. And as they were going, he, he knocked on a particular door, had really no knowledge of the family that was in that house. Unbeknownst to him, the man who came to the door and he talked to was horrible alcoholic. And there were about 10 or 11 people actually in the house there. In 1940, Kaz Wilmot went to reach this family. Within a couple of years, God began really doing a work in that family's life. That raging alcoholic who would send his kids off down the street to beat up the kids next door was transformed by the grace of God. That raging alcoholic's life was changed, and then his kids' lives were changed. So his son became a preacher. His grandson and lots of others became a preacher. But this one particular grandson I'm thinking of, his name is Herschel Wallace York, one of my preaching professors at Southern. His entire family changed. Was it through the power of Kaz Wilmot and his knock on the door? No. But through what God does through minuscule means. Do you think that God can use you to reach your neighbors and you see lives changed? Absolutely. Students, I ask you in here, what can God do? Can God use you in reaching your school, reaching your campus, reaching your team that you're on? Let me tell you a story about Yale University. Everybody's familiar with Yale. It's one of the most prestigious universities in the world. It originally started with solid Christian principles. It didn't take long for things to really go downhill. So by the late 1700s, Yale is just this center of hatred toward God. People who had no desire for anything of God. So there were just a handful of students on campus who were standing up for Christ. And so in 1802, five of these students who were being opposed by the faculty and by other students gathered together for prayer and said, we're going to pray that God will do something here at Yale, that he will work and move. And you know what happened? God did work and move. God transformed that university. So there were hundreds of people coming to know Christ. And where did it all start? With just a handful of students praying. Now, do you think that God can take minuscule means and turn that for working his glory in ways that we cannot ever possibly accomplish by our own means? Absolutely. Student, can God use you on reaching your campus? Yes, he can. No matter how little you think you are, it's not about how little you are and what you think your means are. It's about what God can do. Moms and dads in here. What can God do? Can God work in the lives of your kids? Can God take just the, the simple, faltering, uncertain teaching that you're doing? The, the discipline where you're struggling and not knowing whether you're doing it right, can God take that little bit of faithfulness as you stumble your way through one of the most difficult things that there are, which is parenting? Can God take that? And work in the lives of your kids. Absolutely. Those of you who 
who work day in and day out. You go to your job. Can God use you to reach your workplace? Of course he can. Those of you who are seniors in here, you, you, you sit and recognize that you have fewer years ahead of you than what you've already experienced. And you're entering into what some call your golden years, but it doesn't seem quite as golden as you had once hoped. Can God use you? What can God do through you? Do you think that God can take you and use you for his kingdom purposes right here, right now, or wherever he may take you? Absolutely. God can take any of his people laying themselves down for him, saying, here I am, use me, expectantly hoping that God might do his work among his people, out in the world, wherever, God can do that. And I think that sometimes we know that in our minds. But there may be a disconnect between us actually stepping out and expecting that God might be pleased to work as we share the gospel with our waitress or go to our neighbors, or whatever it might be. What can God do? As we read this story of the feeding of the 4,000, it's, it's just really easy to give the disciples a hard time and say, how could you not get it? But when I look at my life, I have to ask myself the same question, Scott, why can't you get it? You know who God is. Sometimes there's such a disconnect between what I know in my mind and what I'm longing for or perhaps hoping for or praying for or expecting that God might be pleased to use me for his purposes. So maybe this morning you, you're looking at your life and you're realizing that, that you've maybe been perhaps like the disciples. You have the right head knowledge, but that's not translating out into how you live your life. You know in your mind that God can do all things, but you've forgotten in your life that God can do immeasurably more than we ever could think or ask or hope. So this morning, if that's, if that's you, you see yourself in the disciples, I ask you just to confess that to the Lord. Confess that you have known what is right, what is true, but you haven't hoped and longed for and even anticipated, prayed for God to work in and through you, in particular situations. And then I encourage you, step out in faith. What is it that God is calling you to do? What is it that God is stirring and working in your life? What is it that you know that you need to be doing? Some coworker that you need to be taking the gospel to, some neighbor you're trying to reach, some marriage that you're trying to speak truth into and see that marriage restored. What is it that God is working in your life, calling you to, leading you to? What is it that you need to be faithful in? But you have wondered to yourself, can God actually use me? And step out believing that God can take the smallest thing and use it for his mighty purposes. What can our God do? Anything. Let's pray. Sovereign God, our master, our Lord, king of the universe, 
one who reigns over all and has all power. You have all things under your authority. God, we confess, I confess that so often I know the right things, but perhaps I don't. I'm not praying and longing, expecting to see you actually exercise your power. God, guard us against the mistake of the disciples. Guard us against a disconnect in which we know in our minds the right thing. We know in our minds the power that you have, but that doesn't translate into how we live. So this morning, I pray that you'll work in each of our lives. Give us a boldness. Give us a faith, a confidence in stepping out in faith as you lead us. Give us a boldness and a confidence in being obedient, knowing that you will accomplish your purposes, knowing that you are sovereign God reigning over all things and that you can do whatever you purpose. God, I pray that you will use us for your glorious purposes. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.